this morning's text will be from Psalm 88, so you can read along in your Bibles or um, follow along on the screen behind me. All right, hear the, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those to whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do, your work, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we admit our need for you. Use this time of the preaching of your word to let us be honest with ourselves, honest with you. And do a mighty work in us. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Children, you are dismissed to meet your teachers in the back as you go learn about Moses. And how God's faithfulness kept him uh, through providential working through Pharaoh's daughter. So go and enjoy that. And as we get started this morning, as I often do, I want to start with a question. And the question is this. What can miserable Christians sing? What can miserable Christians sing? And that's not just a question, it's a title of an article that was written several years ago. And the author goes on to to show how the the songs sung and the general culture cultivated in many modern Western churches doesn't really map onto the Bible, especially as it relates to the Psalms. The lamentations, the brokenness, the sorrow, the sadness. So vividly expressed by so many of the 150 poems in the book we call the Psalter. And he goes on and he writes, Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of numbers, influence, and spiritual maturity. Perhaps, and this is more likely, it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. Yet the human condition is a poor one. And Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart are looking for a better country should know this. By excluding the cries of loneliness, disposition, and desolation from its worship, The church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. 
by doing so, it has implicitly endorsed banal aspirations of consumerism, generated an inseparated, trivial, unrealistically triumphalistic Christianity, and confirmed its impeccable credentials as a club for the complacent. End quote. I wonder if that's been your experience of Christianity that it requires plastic smiles and superficial conversations, that Christians never have questions or doubts and skip through life along the merry path. And then they come together on Sundays to sing joyful tunes, hear an inspirational message about how to be happier and better with all that is going well in their life. Well, I think that version of Christianity borrows more from Mattel's Barbie doll than it does the Bible. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to preach through a few psalms. Because they leave no room for fake, impotent, shallow faith in the Lord. The psalms are honest and raw. When we don't know what to feel or what to say, the psalms help us. As we said, the psalms not only speak to us, but they often speak for us. They're filled with heart-gripping emotion, and God made us to be emotional beings. And so the Psalms uniquely capture portraits of human life. And there are plenty of Psalms that express the highs and joys of praise. I'll preach one of those in a couple of weeks. But there are also dozens and dozens of Psalms that take us to the depths of sorrow, that help us walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's common in the Psalms to, to find a person with deep trust in the Lord, right? He's, he or, he's in pain and he's crying out to the Lord, Oh Lord, why is this happening to me? Where are you? See, the, the Psalms transparently and honestly declare distress, Psalm 4, sorrow, Psalm 6, affliction, Psalm 25, grief, Psalm 35, fear, mourning, loneliness, dismay. They don't hesitate to confess They're consumed with anguish, worn out from groaning, bowed down and brought low, feeble and utterly crushed, downcast, overcome by trouble, and in desperate need. I could go on. And most of these psalms are a mixture of pain and praise. So typically, the psalmist tells us of his trouble, and then by the end of the psalm, he's saying, but O Lord, I praise you. So we we think of of Psalm 13. It begins with, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then at the end, the psalmist says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so these psalms help pull us through hard times. They, They articulate a hope despite what we face and what we feel. But there's a season of the soul that moves slower than a few verses can capture. A season that for whatever reason the pain is so penetrating, the malaise is so thick, the future is so bleak, we don't even know what it's like to articulate hope. Sometimes the weight of our trials threaten to suffocate our faith, the turmoil of our troubles somehow in the same way both numb us and consume us. Is there a psalm for the language of that season of the soul? Yes, there is. Psalm 88. If you didn't catch it, Psalm 88 isn't a feel-good, everything-will-be-all-right tomorrow kind of psalm. Psalm 88 ends without any explicit expression of hope. It's been called the darkest corner and saddest prayer in the psalm. The psalm begins with a cry of desperation and ends with companions of darkness. The psalmist is as troubled at the end of the psalm as he was at the beginning. The longer I walk the Christian life, the longer I'm a Christian myself and look into my own heart and counsel and disciple others, the more and more I see why God gave us this passage of Scripture. And we don't have to edit or ignore parts of God's Word. I've been wanting to preach this passage for years, but I've never had the courage to do it. It's hard. For my non-Christian friends, I'm not sure this is what you expected when you came to church this morning. But I hope that you see the Christian life 
is remarkably realistic and optimistic, meaning it's realistic. We can acknowledge life's trials. We don't have to be fake. And it's optimistic because it holds out the life that you want. You don't have to be afraid and scared. So as we walk through this psalm, let me invite all of us to see how it speaks into our life and offers the promise that we want. Let's jump into Psalm 88. We see there in the, the superscript that it says it's a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. So if you remember last time I preached, I preached a mascal. That, that term means something like instruction or teaching. And this, so this psalm was written to give instruction. This reminds us of what we saw back in Psalm 1, right? Blessed are the one whose delight is in the law or the instruction of the Lord. And on his instruction, he meditates day and night. And so remember the, the blessed life that I said is the, the happy life, but it's not a cotton candy fluffy, full of substance that that dissolves tomorrow kind of happiness. It's something deeper. It's a joy that that is independent of circumstances that helps us navigate the trials of life. You could say it's a joy that's marked not by the absence of hard times, but the presence of God's promises. That's what the Psalms are getting at. So Psalm 88 instructs us what it looks like to lament, to mourn, to cry out when dark nights of the soul seem to have no end. And as we meditate on this psalm, we, by the Holy Spirit, will be like trees that bear fruit in season, whenever that season may come. It might be a year, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, I don't know. But whenever that season comes, our leaves won't wither with the droughts of discouragement and despair upon us until then. And so this psalm is written, it says, by Heman the Ezraite. We know from this title that Heman is, a, is the, called the sons of Korah. They wrote many psalms, the sons of Korah did. But what else do we know about him? First, first Kings 4.31. Solomon was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman. So the Bible says Heman must be a pretty wise man to say a Solomon is wiser even than that guy. So we know that... that Heman is a very wise man. And if you go read the book of Chronicles, you see in chapter 15 and in chapter 25, they tell us that Heman was appointed by King David to help lead music at the temple. Or to put it in modern vernacular, we could say Heman is a wise, godly man who is mature enough and musically skilled enough to be appointed the deacon of music or to be the worship pastor, as it were. So keep that in mind as we go through this psalm. It's written by a godly man who's faithfully striving to serve God. So here's what I want to do. First, I want to help us feel the weight of this psalm. Psalm 88 is not written from the academic armchair asking theoretical questions. It's written from the wheelchair with puffy, tear-filled eyes in the midst of true suffering. So our goal this morning is not merely to be spectators of this psalm, but companions with the psalmist to help feel and enter and identify in the sorrow. And then after we do that, I want to draw out four lessons that might help us in our dark and difficult times. And so some of you, that's right now. You walked in here this morning and you feel like you're wearing a 500-pound lead suit. You try to move, but it just leaves you exhausted. You try to rest, but your bed feels like it has sandpaper sheets and a rock pillow. I praise God you're here this morning. And I pray this psalm ministers to you. And if it's not you, there may be a time in the future when Psalm 88 is your lot. And you'll be glad to know then that it's in the Bible. And even if it's never you, you will have friends brothers and sisters in this church and another church, that this is their lot. And so you would do well to pay attention. So you can see how God might use this psalm to help you help another. So it's good for all of us to feel the weight of this psalm. So after crying out to God in verses 1 and 2, Heman lets us know the state of his soul, verse 3. For my soul is full of of troubles, and my soul draws near Sheol. He doesn't sugarcoat things. There's no kind of, sort of, maybe language here. He just tells it like it is. And notice that it says, full of troubles. That's plural. 
And if you drop down to verse 15, we see that he has been afflicted and close to death from my youth up. So whatever is taking a place in Heman's life is both plural and persistent. We don't know exactly what troubled him. He doesn't give specifics. And I think that's better for us. I think it's better that we don't know. Because then it allows it to apply to us no matter where we are. So if your soul is full of troubled because of chronic illness or tragedy to a loved one, this psalm is for you. If your soul is full of trouble because of persistent, unfulfilled, godly desires, or because of plaguing discouragement that you don't know why is there, this psalm is for you. If your soul is troubled because of unrelenting relational tension or because of tormenting eternal thoughts about yourself, this psalm is for you. No matter where you are, no matter what darkness you're facing, no matter what sorrow might be consuming you, this psalm speaks to you and for you. And Heman tells us that he's troubled. But exactly how does he feel? Verses 3 through 5, he tells us. And you'll notice these verses are permeated with images of death. Down in the pit. He's among the dead. He lies in the grave. Sheol is the place of death. But we know he's not actually dead. He is writing this psalm after all. So he's describing how he feels, how he perceives his situation. So he's saying, though I'm not physically dead, I may as well be. You can almost hear him saying, I feel as though I died, yet my body hasn't caught up yet. It's similar to the person who recounts this story. When the doctor came to my room and said, I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't feel ready to answer it, please don't. And then he asked, who are you? I panicked. What do you mean? When you look inside, who do you see? The doctor asked. It was horrible. When I looked inside, I couldn't see anyone. All I saw was a black hole. That's how the psalmist feels. He looks into his soul and he sees darkness, emptiness in the core of his being. His griefs are ever before him like a grave ready to swallow him up. And in verses 6 through 8, he points to God as the source of his affliction. Look at verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions of the dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. Five times he tells God, God, you're responsible for this. And if that wasn't enough, he tells him four more times at the end of the psalm. Look at verses 15 through 18. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. The psalmist knows that God is sovereign over all things, even suffering and sorrow. His theology is correct. God is the ultimate source of everything. Nothing comes into our life except it passes through the hand of a sovereign God. Is there mystery there? Well, of course there is. But I don't think Heman is just articulating theology. I think he's voicing frustration. He's being honest with God. It's as though the psalmist is saying, it feels like I'm dying, and worse than that, dying under your wrath with no hope. You've made even my friends turn their back on me. Your goal is to destroy me and put me in the pit. That's how I feel. That's how I perceive what's going on. There's a battle in his soul. And it's a battle being waged by Satan himself. He's being enticed by Satan to question God's goodness. Right? So, as another pastor says, the most sinister thoughts Satan insinuates into our minds are not enticements to sin, but suspicions about God Himself. 
That's the battle this psalmist is in. Verse 8. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. The psalmist feels trapped and cannot get out. It's like he's walking around in a dark-tinted phone booth. And someone has ripped the phone out so he can't call anybody. But he knows God is his only hope. So he continues to call out to the Lord. Verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. You feel the tension? God's sovereignty makes the situation both more problematic and more possible. He's wrestling with God. He's, his feelings may not map on to reality, but they are how he really feels. Our feelings are real even if they're not always true. And, and notice what the psalmist is doing. He, he's notice, he, he's trying not to give his emotions the final word. He's trying to submit his feelings to God. He keeps going back to God. And he tells God, what's going on in my soul? I feel abandoned by you. I feel deserted by my friends. I'm alone and isolated. And you feel the despair as he begins to question God. Verses 10 through 12, he rattles off questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Again, there's this tension of accusation and appeal. It's at the same time the psalmist is both cross-examining God and crying out to God. Notice in each one of the questions, he mentions something of God's goodness. Right? Notice why he's questioning God. God's wonders, God's praise, God's steadfast love, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness. So he's saying, God, I want to praise you. Lord, I want to praise you. I want to declare your love and your faithfulness. I want to tell others of your wonders and your righteousness. And I cannot do that right now. I feel like I'm dead. Heal me, Lord. Heal me so I can show off your love and tell others of your greatness. Heal me, Lord. Why won't you do it? So I think it's helpful to notice this is not merely a selfish request for comfort. This is not merely a self-centered prayer, but God-centered. He's asking for mercy not to presume upon it, but to praise God for it. These questions are faithful requests to God as the one who could deliver him and is the one the psalmist wants to praise, even though he cannot bring himself to do it right now. Do you feel the tension in this man's soul? His faith is splintered. It's fragile. But God's not answering him. But he knows God's his only hope. So he calls out to the Lord, verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. And then his questions turn to why. O Lord, why? Why do you cast my soul away? Why? Why do you hide your face from me? He's lamenting God's apparent absence. He's confused. He doesn't understand. He just wants some answers. Is that too much to ask God? Ever been there? He looks back and he sees nothing but mess and misery. He looks up and hears nothing but silence. He looks around and sees no one, not even his closest companions. So he ends his prayer with one guttural groan. My companions have become my darkness. Or as another translation puts it, my closest friend is darkness. Darkness has been the psalmist's companion all throughout this psalm. Look at verse 6. Where is he? He feels as though he's where? In the regions of the dark and deep. Verse 12, 
He's in the darkness. And now literally, both in English and in Hebrew, the final word is darkness. Period. For some of us, this is confusing. We're we're quietly thinking right now, how can a person feel this way? Are we allowed to pray like that? For some of us, this is comforting. We're quietly thinking, finally, someone knows how I feel. I'm so thankful I'm allowed to pray like that. So what are we to take away from this psalm? It suggests four things. We're going to walk through each of them. I think we begin by rejoicing that this prayer is even in the Bible. And we need to realize sorrow comes even to the godly. Number three, we need to regularly cry out to God in faith. And fourth, we need to remember we have a perspective the psalmist did not. Rejoice, Psalm 88 is in the Bible. So before we run too quickly, let's pause and not overlook the fact that this is actually in the Bible. Inspired by God for us. That alone is pretty amazing. As one commentator says, the very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to the Lord's understanding. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. God knows how we feel even when we're frustrated, confused, and hurt. And not only does God know how we feel, through the Holy Spirit, He inspired a psalm to be recorded in God's holy word. And God does not feel the need to edit or censor it. That's amazing. Because if I'm the editor, you know what I'm doing? I'm going, thanks, Heman. This is a good, good song. But here's what we got to do. We either need to add another verse at the end, because we can't end with darkness. Like, that's too mad. Or why don't we add a fluffy chorus in the middle to lighten it up a little bit? And we need to sing that over and over again to relieve some of the weight. Not God. God's not embarrassed by prayers of honest desperation. God does not say, I don't want to be identified with people like that. Nope. They don't have it put together. And he says, I identify with people like that. Psalm 88 is God's way of saying, I'm not your God because you say everything right and reverently. I'm your God because of grace. Psalm 88 reminds us that God is the God of those who come come to him not with polished speech, but with poverty of spirit. Discouraged brothers and sisters, take heart. God is not embarrassed by you. God is not automatically displeased with you and disgusted with you because you might be downcast. He's a good, caring Father in heaven. In Christ Jesus, you are His beloved son or His beloved daughter. And as a good Father, He does not harshly scold you when you're sad. He comes alongside you. So much so, He says, listen, I've inspired a prayer in Scripture for you. For the good of your troubled soul, he inspired a desperate, honest, gut-wrenching prayer to be forever recorded in God's indelible word that will never perish or go away so you know the type of God you can cry out to. That's amazing. So let's just stop and rejoice that Psalm 88 is in the Bible. And as we do that, We need to realize sorrow comes even to the godly. So lesson number two, realize sorrow comes even to the godly. So remember what we know about Heman. He was a mature godly man appointed to help lead singing at the temple. Not only that, but did you notice that throughout this psalm he he pursued God? Like he's pursuing God. Again, to use modern language, we could say Heman regularly had his quiet time. Every day, Lord, I cry out to you. And evidently, he's a student of theology in the Bible. 
He uses buzzwords for how God has revealed himself. Personal name of God, steadfast love. All he, like he knows his Bible. He's pursuing God. And there's no mention of grievous sin in this psalm or anywhere else in human's life. He's not perfect. None of us are. But there's no grievous sin. And so we need to remember, like we, we saw in Psalm 32 a couple weeks ago, that it's true, unconfessed sin can be like a spiritual sandbag weighing down our soul. And we need to exhort one another when sin is present. We need to confess our sins to one another. We need to work out our salvation with grace-fueled, spirit and power, faith-filled effort. We need to do those things. But, Psalm 88 reminds us, just because there's sorrow does not mean there's hidden, unconfessed sin. It doesn't mean that God is displeased or is punishing us. See, the psalmist here is doing everything right, and yet, yet, he's still plagued with sorrow. We need to realize that even the godly face suffering and sorrow, mature Christians can go through discouragement and have downcast souls. I think most of us, and hopefully all of us, would reject what's called the prosperity gospel. It's the gospel that says, well, if you trust in Jesus, well, then you'll have health, wealth, and success, and everything else. It's a false teaching that needs to be repudiated and rejected. But, I think we can be tempted toward a softer prosperity gospel. Perhaps even unconsciously, we begin to believe that if we just do the right things, then our life will go generally well. And we'll skip along the merry path. We might fall down and bump our knee every now and again, but on the whole, it'll just go just fine. And when this happens, when we fail to realize that even mature, godly, faithful men and women can suffer sorrows of the soul, we are prone to overly condemn ourselves and quickly criticize other Christians. See, we think to ourselves or tell others, well, if you just pray enough and muster up enough belief and you do all the right things, then God will always feel near to you and you'll avoid the worst things in life. Think about it. What if that was the advice this man received? Hey man, just pray more. Just read your Bible more. Just believe more, man. Come on. He was already doing those things. That advice would have devastated him. And here's the other thing. Who would have it put at the center of his change? Himself. That's a weight he cannot and should not bear. Nor was he, you, or I meant to carry that weight. The world is broken. And even the godly can have troubled souls. See it here in Psalm 88. And as you read the Bible this year, just pay attention. Here's a few. Joseph, faithfully pursuing God, maintaining sexual integrity, prison. Do you think he had days of sadness? David spent years avoiding assassination from his own son. How do you think his soul was? Hiding in a cave. We got to mention Job, right? Sermon on suffering, got to bring in Job. Righteous man. Family killed, possessions destroyed, health afflicted. Paul faithfully pursues Jesus, plants churches, preaching Christ, crucified and resurrected. I know nothing else, God. Cape flapping in the wind. To live as Christ dies, gain. Persecuted, ridiculed, and imprisoned. Go read 2 Corinthians 1. Even Paul says he despaired of life itself because of the burdens on him. We could list people from church history. I'll give just one. A man by the name of Charles Spurgeon could say he was the first megachurch pastor in England. He battled bout of despair. And he recounts at one point, quote, I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. The iron bolt mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds my spirit in gloomy prison. End quote. And we herald him as one of the, he's called the prince of preachers. 
Charles Spurgeon is. And if that's not convincing enough, think of Jesus. A man of what? A man of what? Sorrows. A man of sorrows. Jesus himself says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And how much sin was there in Christ? None. None. So can I plead with you not to hold yourself and others to a higher standard than Jesus? Brothers and sisters, it's true. We have a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's true. He is returning to restore all things back to perfection, but it's also true in the here and now. We experience brokenness, and we experience the groans of our full future redemption as we journey toward heaven together. So let this psalm teach you to be patient with yourself, to recognize the mere presence of sorrow and discouragement does not automatically equate to immaturity or sinfulness or God's displeasure. It doesn't. Be patient with yourself. And remember, being patient is not the same thing as being apathetic. And let this psalm teach us to be compassionate and long-suffering with our fellow brothers and sisters when they face unrelenting troubles in their soul. Don't always look for an immediate fix. Sometimes, just listen. Do not, I plead with you, do not go on a relentless hunt looking for unconfessed sin that may not be there. Scripture calls us to weep with those who weep. It doesn't say, here's what you need to do. First, you need to judge why they're weeping and think if you have good enough reason that they be sad, and if so, then weep with them. Weep with those who weep. Are there times for correction and exhortation? Of course. Of course there is. Are there times when there's unconfessed sin? Of course there is. But correction and exhortation, don't let that always be the first and the primary thing that comes out of your mouth. Ask yourself this question. Am I quicker to correct or be compassionate? Is your only category, Jesus is Savior, so everything's fine? Or do you have the category of Jesus as suffering one, so it hurts. It's true. The hope of Resurrection Sunday is coming. But it's also true, we have to walk through the pain and darkness of Friday to get there. In the midst of sorrow and discouragement, see, all of us will say things that make no sense. All of us might say things that are technically not theologically precise. But it's not helpful if we have a bunch of dumb friends like Job had that can say things and just heap extra burden on us. We need to be compassionate, kind, listen, caring. Weep with those who weep. So let this psalm give you language to enter into the trouble and experience of another. If you don't know what to say or what to do, just say, can I read Psalm 88? And read it and say, is that how you feel? Yep, I'm sorry. Can I pray for you? I mean, well, you see here in verse 6, he understands the sovereignty of God, and so you too need to understand the sovereignty of God. Not helpful in that moment. So we need to... Realize, even the godly suffer sorrow of the soul. And because of this, we need to regularly cry out to God in faith. Lesson three, regularly cry out to God in faith. So did you notice, I've already hinted at it, but did you notice throughout this psalm, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord. Verse one, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse nine, every day I call upon you, O Lord. Verse 13, I, O Lord, cry out to you. Verse 14, O Lord, why? 
Right? So four times in this psalm, he calls upon the Lord. That's the, that's the personal covenant name of God. That's how God revealed himself to his people. So objectively speaking, this psalmist knows God. And what does he say in the first verse? God of my what? God of my salvation. So he knows that he needs to be saved, and he knows that God can save him. The only one. And so he says, yes, God, you are the God of my salvation. He may not feel the warm and fuzzies right now, but his feelings do not change the facts of who God is and what God has done. And so he continually cries out to the Lord. And some might give the advice that, hey, that's, that's hypocritical to cry out to God when you don't, you don't feel like it. Don't cry out to God unless he, he feels near to you. You know, that's not true faith. But I'd say no. This psalmist is showing us what true faith is. Even though things never change for him, he still clings to God. Think about it. If he were to stop praying, what would that say about his faith? It would say this, that he was using the Lord, not trusting him. If he were to stop crying out altogether and run away from God because he didn't get what, exactly what he wanted, it would show that God was his servant, not his sovereign savior. His persistent plea, despite his sorrow, reveals a saving faith in the one true God. The same is true for you. When you do something only, only, only because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it reveals an anchoring faith. True faith, deep faith, is revealed in the darkest times. It doesn't mean we always feel it. Don't feel like you have to wait until you're better to worship and cry out to God. You might wait a really long time. Don't load on yourself the extra burden of being okay before crying out to Jesus. Be honest with God. He can handle it. Here's a little secret. God's not afraid of the dark. He will join you there. Take your questions to him. Now, this does not mean, right, I want to be careful, this does not mean we can say whatever we want and do whatever we want and justify it because of the way I feel. It's not what he's getting at. Notice the psalmist's posture here. He's not having a latte with a friend complaining about God. He's crying out to and wrestling with God. Big difference. He's not asking questions with a clenched fist. God, I can't. But an open heart. God. His posture is one of brokenness before God and before others, not cold bitterness. Is he frustrated? You bet. Is he angry? Probably. Is he confused? For sure. But he's fleeing to God, not running away. He's regularly crying out to God. And this is the type of posture Psalm 88 invites us to, to regularly, continually cry out to God through faith in Jesus, even when we don't feel like it. So, oh, oh Lord, God of my salvation, I call trusting you. I, uh, Jesus, his life is my life. His, his death is payment for my sin. His resurrection is my only hope. Through Jesus alone, he's all I got. I cry out to you. Would you hear me, Lord? Hear me, hear me, hear me, Lord. He's all I got. I know I don't feel it. But would you help me, Lord? And even when you can't personally cry out to God, let me encourage you to borrow the voice of a fellow brother or sister. So with permission, I tell about one of our members. And uh, a couple months ago, he was battling a dark season of the soul. He was laying in bed, and he knew he needed to cry out to God. And he did not want to. I don't want to, God. So you know what he did? He got out his phone, opened up the Bible app, scrolled to Psalm 77, handed it to his wife, turned the other way and said, read it to me. Even that's a cry out to God. Recognizing God, you're all I got. 
and I need to hear your word. I don't feel like reading it, but I'm going to have somebody else read it to me because I know I need to hear it. So Restoration Church, may we be a family that regularly cries out to God for and with each other when we face the hard times in this life. I praise God for the many ways we do this, and I hope that it happens all the more. If you're struggling, let someone know. Don't hide. You're not alone. You don't have to be fake, and you're not hypocritical. So may we be honest in our community groups, disciple relationships. May we help each other wrestle with God and cry out to Him when seasons of our soul are troubled. And as we do that, let's remember we have a perspective the psalmist didn't. Lesson four, remember our perspective. So the psalmist knew that God was sovereign over us, but we know that God suffers with us. See, the psalmist knew God's promises as the covenant maker. We know God's purchase through Jesus as the covenant keeper. The last word in this psalm is darkness. But praise be to God, that is not the last word in the Bible. The darkness of this psalm points us to Jesus, the one who took on this darkness. Heman felt genuine darkness, but Jesus truly experienced ultimate darkness, and this psalm points to him. Think about it. Jesus was abandoned by all his closest companions. Jesus was put in the depths of the pit, slain and put in the grave. He didn't just feel like it, it happened. Jesus suffered under the righteous wrath of God so much that it overwhelmed him. On the cross, Jesus hung, suspended between heaven and earth, taking on the darkness of our sin, taking on the darkness of God's full righteous judgment. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God so loved the world, he was silent. He didn't answer Jesus. Why? So that when you called out, He could and would answer you. And He would save you from the deepest, darkest pit of hell forever. Separation from God forever. See, Jesus was forsaken by God that we might have our everlasting fellowship with God. When it seems darkness is your only friend, remember Jesus faced the darkness of the cross so that you could be called the friend of God. See, Jesus was murdered as he screamed from the cross so that even in our misery, we might sing about the cross, remembering darkness does not have the final word. The light of the resurrection and the hope of heaven does. Will there be hard days and discouraging seasons? Will there be trials and tragedies? Of course. But remember, we have a perspective the psalmist didn't. We have the full revelation of Jesus. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Death and darkness was arrested by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. For my non-Christian friends, I hope by now you see the ironic beauty of Psalm 88. And the preciousness of the Jesus that it points to. If you've been trying to overcome dark seasons of your soul, can I plead with you to come to Jesus? And I hope you see that does not mean your immediate circumstances are going to be merry, rose-filled paths. But it does mean this. Darkness will not have the final word if you come to Christ. Though your earthly life might be marked with darkness for all of eternity, for billions and billions and billions of years, You will live in the light of perfection, heaven on earth, God with his people together forever and ever. Amen. And so we invite you to sing with us, even when we're miserable. 
One day we'll be singing only in the majestic presence of Jesus. The wonders of heaven on earth, darkness forever gone, sorrow and sadness forever eradicated. So what can miserable Christians sing? We can sing Psalm 88. We can also sing songs like the one we're getting ready to sing called It Is Well, My Soul. At first, this song might seem like a pie-in-the-sky anthem. It was written by a man by the name Horatio Spafford. And like the psalmist, Horatio was intimately acquainted with suffering. In 1871, his four-year-old son died from scarlet fever. The same year, he was financially ruined as all of his real estate investments were completely destroyed in the Chicago fire. Two years later, his wife and four daughters were sailing to Europe when their ship was struck by a large vessel. His four young daughters, ages 2 through 11, all drowned. Only his wife survived. Horatio received this news and immediately jumped on a ship to get to England to, to see his wife. And the lyrics for It Is Well was written as he sailed over the same location where his daughters drowned. I'm guessing It Is Well was written with as much plea to God as praise for God. In fact, I think like Psalm 88, it's one continual plea to cry out to God that even in the darkest of times, knowing the ultimate light of heaven is just ahead. Amen? Let me invite the musicians to come up. And as they do, I'm going to read a few verses from it as well. few verses. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my fate shall be sight, the cloud be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you that it speaks into the darkness of our lives. We thank you that we do not have to be fake and hide because you came to us in Christ and you swallowed up darkness. So Father, as we walk through hard times now, let us have the perspective of Jesus. Let us be quick to comfort one another and not just correct each other. And let us sing. Sing of the glories of Christ. So we sing now with a plea that it would be well with our souls now and forever. And all God's people say, Amen.